Hello, and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Sean. And I'm Eric. And we are the aforementioned Vertiguys. It's another episode of the Vertiguys podcast. The one on which we check out the dark side of DC. That is what we do. Starting with the big three Vertigo comic books. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. It's funny that you mentioned Preacher, because we are going to talk about Preacher at 38 through 40 this week. So, like, is 39 in there? Yeah. Okay. That's what that's what's represented by the through. Okay. Alright. Just making sure. Previously on Preacher, well New pre- Killer Weapons. <laughs> Hairstar had a plan to put down the immortal saint of killers by ordering a nuclear strike in Monument Valley. It did not work. But in their attempt to escape the blast radius, Jesse Custer fell out of a plane and was caught by the arm of his friend Cassidy, who Let's mention here has been quietly making passes at Jesse's girlfriend Tulip without Jesse knowing about it for several months. Yeah. And Jesse, not knowing any of this, not wanting Cassidy to be killed in the attempt to save him, ordered him, using the word of God, to let go. Yeah. Jesse fell from the plane and was never heard from again. I don't know what's going to happen to these issues of Preacher. I just thought of a funny name for Jesse Custer. Funnier than Jesse Custard Pudding King? John Pudding. <laughs> Well, that's a preview of the kind of thing you're in for. Yeah, that's the podcast you're listening to. Don't look at me. I'm not listening to it. (laughs) So, launching into Preacher number 38, Badlands. Badlands. This issue was written by Garth Ennis. It has art by Steve Dillon. It has colors, which I guess are just another kind of art, by Pamela Rambo. It has a cover by Glenn Fabry. What do we see on that cover? As a matter of fact, those credits will apply to all of the issues that we discussed today. But the cover will be different on each one. What a pro. <laughs> Just drawing a new cover for every single issue. This time we have Arseface rocking out on stage. He is wearing a t-shirt with a smiley face on it, which is his own arse-shaped face. So take a drink. Uh, we have a bandmate here who looks like Guy from Street Fighter. and he's Does Guy from Street Fighter wear a kilt? No, but he has his hair down over his face like that. Oh, okay. He's got boxing gloves on. Yeah, he's playing the guitar with boxing gloves on. He's got the kilt, which was kind of a 90s rock thing, corn, I guess. Oh, yeah. And there's a guy down here in the corner who is incredibly enthusiastic about this music and just looks goofy as hell. Yeah, he looks really stupid. Which I think is deliberate. Yeah, I wonder if this is Glenn Fabry, you know, taking a a run at post-grunge music. Well, yeah, Arse Face is kind of broadly a parody of grunge, as we discussed a couple of issues ago. Yeah, and I mean the idea that there's this jackass fan, and the guy plays guitar with boxing gloves on, you know. Yeah, he obviously can't play the guitar very well, and that seems to be a a shot across the bow of the grunge aesthetic. If this cover is expressing anything, it's that this music can't be sounding very good. Yeah, I think that's right. So, the issue opens with a text box informing us that it is one month later. Here we find Cassidy breaking into a pharmacy, stealing pills. We are immediately greeted here with a very different color palette from the last couple of issues. The War in the Sun arc took place, you know, in the sun. And here we're in a gray and dismal night, showing our heroes in a very dark place. Yeah. So he's breaking into this pharmacy at night... For reasons that are not yet apparent. And there's a guard dog. Fuck off, Fido. We just find the guard dog flying through the front window of the pharmacy. Cassidy gives him a bit of a kickin'. Cassidy gets in the pickup truck. Tulip's sitting there. 
eyes half-closed, heavy-lidded. She says, gimme. So I guess that's what the drugs are for. Yeah, and he looks kind of inscrutably troubled here as she's going through the pills. Oh, I guess we saw it on the last page, too, but the name of the place is Pope's Pharmacy. Cassidy might have some bias against Protestants, remember. Fought in the Irish Revolution. Yeah, why would that make him go after a place called Pope's Pharmacy? Well, maybe that's the only place he trusts. Oh, I see, I see. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I I think he's probably broken into more than one pharmacy in the last month, but that's just me. Hmm, I see. So you're you're already extrapolating a pattern. Yes, I am. Yeah. We see the pickup truck take off down this dark, deserted street, and we get the title, Badlands. Yeah. This is a very large, very desolate title page. As we turn the page, we are on the TV program Long Hard Look, hosted by Jeff King. As King introduces his show, we learn that 800 people, mostly local Navajo, died in the nuclear blast. 2,000 more were fatally irradiated. Right, and the government has no leads. No nation or terrorist group claimed responsibility for the nuclear explosion. No clues as to method or motivation. No leads on a delivery vehicle or the origin of the device, even now. Where do we go from here? We, of course, know exactly what the delivery device was. It was a B-2 stealth. Yeah, it was stealths. Yeah, it was ordered by the president under the orders of the Grail, and he can't come out and say that because the Grail is much more dangerous than a mere president of the United States. Yeah, but he did send his press secretary out to sort of apologize for it. Yeah, well, the press secretary was forced to resign after pointing out that it could have been a lot worse. So, Jeff King introduces his guests, Ulysses Gett and Martha Moore. Yeah, Ulysses Gett is a big, bald Republican. Yeah, he is a cheerful fascist. (laughs) I mean, these are both stereotypes. Oh, no, no, don't get me wrong. Like, Martha Moore is also definitely portrayed as a fucking asshole. (laughs) Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the archetypal conservative and liberal commentator to show up. Ulysses Gett is huge and... Martha Moore is a tiny woman with short hair and a pierced nose. And in a moment here, he's going to accuse her of lesbian propaganda. Well, and she does, like, in sort of a, a ludicrously sweeping way, say that the nuclear explosion is the fault of, like, every American. Right, right. The blame becomes so diluted <laughs> in her view of things that there's basically no accountability. Yeah, neither of them has a real answer here. Get's answer is... Life sucks. Get a radiation suit. I think that might have been right about the point where I wrote in my notes, What a douche! (laughs) Yeah, he's a fucking asshole. Although, the way he starts going after her nose piercing is actually, like, that's where he becomes, like, really silly. Oh, yeah. He just suddenly notices the nose piercing and can't focus on the conversation. What the fuck is going on? (laughs) Yeah. He's just shocked out of his complacency by this. Has a woman made a fashion choice that doesn't give me a boner? (laughs) My whole world is shattered! (laughs) Right. I also want to point out here that twice in two pages, Martha Moore says, I fail to see the humor in this situation. Yeah, she's got a little catchphrase there. She also talks about, she says that the nuclear bomb was the fault of a phallocentric society. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Arth Ennis is going out of his way here to make her sound pretty silly as well. They're both definitely caricatures of different political ends of the spectrum. Right, and as Ulysses Gett is threatening to kill Martha Moore's children, King says, It's a debate with no easy resolution. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he solemnly cuts away to a commercial showing a model pouring coke on her tits. Yeah, well, I also want to point out here real quick, he also has a quote from a tribal representative, Thomas Blackfeather, who says, White man fuck us before, white man fuck us again. Big fucking surprise. <laughs> I thought that was a fairly witty response. It's a droit. <laughs> it's, it's a bit dry. <laughs> yeah, once again, we see that Garth Ennis doesn't seem to think very much of TV, or at least he's got a sharp satirical scalpel ready for it. Well, TV or politically entrenched people, I guess. Right. The political debate here doesn't touch on the issues. It's just, it's boiled down to its simplest, like, personality versus personality kind of form. Yeah, exactly. Not very useful commentary. Meanwhile, who lives down in an old silver mine? Her star does. For the time being, anyway. So Star wakes up, and he's been rescued by these three rednecks who have one shirt between them. The Chunt Brothers. Is that a play on a certain vulgar term for the female anatomy? We'll never know. Okay. Garth Ennis, come on our show so we can ask you. (laughs) So they're living in this old silver mine there, Carl, Ernie, and Cyrus Chunt. They were apparently outside the blast radius and and either too far away to be hurt by the fallout or they were shielded by the mine. Yeah, I got the impression that they're so deep. Right. Crash was what did you. Had to take your damn leg off, by golly. Yeah, Hairstar is in disbelief that he lost one of his legs. Apparently in the helicopter crash? More on that later. Right, Cyrus interjects here with Wub. Cyrus is apparently mentally disabled to some degree. Well, this is our first Wub sighting. This is going to continue until it reaches its horrifying conclusion. So furious at the loss of his leg, Star lashes out, and Carl decides for his own good, he had better be manacled down. This is for your own good, boy. You move around, and you're liable to hurt yourself. You ain't well, see? Gotta take things easy. Get your strength up again. As they walk away, Don't you know who I am? Wub. Shut up, Cyrus. Here we find Hair Star in... It's a situation where his his high status can't help him. Yeah, that's right. With people who are completely ignorant of... Well, everyone's ignorant of his status, but he also doesn't have anyone he can call in here. Yeah, I mean, we've seen how easily he can push around the most powerful people in the world. So it's sort of essential to put him in a situation like this, where none of that is of any use to him at all. Right. He's forced to rely on his cunning. So we're going to see a different facet of Hairstar here, one that's dangerous for different reasons than he has been so far. Mm, Perhaps so. In a motel room, we find... Tulip's got a burger and a bottle of vodka, but she's not hungry. Cassidy points out that she's adding that vodka to an awful lot of tranquilizers. Look, is it really good for you, drinking vodka on top of all them bloody tranquilizers you're taking? Well, what would be good for me, Cassidy? Do you know? He just looks sad. Steve Dillon's doing a lot of different Cassidy facial expressions in this issue. Right. He's, he's going through a lot of shit, but Dillon is doing a pretty good job giving him nuance here. Yeah. Right, well, try and get some rest anyway. I want to head on this evening. If Star's got the wherewithal to chuck fucking nuclear bombs at us, he won't have much trouble picking up our trail, don't you think? She's unable to deal with this and just breaks down crying. Do you want to talk or something? I just want him back! Cassidy tries to comfort her, saying how badly Jesse's death has hurt him too. But she lashes out, saying sort of what he didn't want to think she'd been thinking. But why did it have to be him? Yeah, and there's a panel of him just looking 
utterly devastated on hearing that. I've written crestfallen. Yeah, that's a good word. I almost said it a second ago. So apparently having given up on hitting the road tonight, Cassidy heads out for more beer. And Tulip mutters to herself, He breathed in air. He breathed out light. Jesse Custer was my delight. Are you familiar with this poem? She's paraphrasing Goodbye by Adrian Mitchell. Holy shit, he actually is familiar with it, folks. <laughs> shit's fucking uncanny. <laughs> it's a very short poem. She's actually quoted the entire thing, except that the original line was Charlie Parker. I should have said, jazz great Charlie Parker. Not just some guy named Charlie Parker. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know that, do we? <laughs> it's a poem. Everybody brings something to it. <laughs> right, you can assume it's about jazz great Charlie Parker, but that's an interpretation. <laughs> Meanwhile, who lives on a TV screen? Uh, the person who lives on a television screen is Ars Face. Yeah, his offer to join a benefit for the victims of the nuclear blast has been rejected with a very short statement. A spokesperson commented simply, be serious. This is ironic because we know that as ridiculous as he may be or appear, Ars Face is completely genuine. Yeah, he's very earnest. Right, he just wants to help. It's the rest of the world that treats him as a joke. He doesn't see himself that way. Right. And now we now cut to him being interviewed by reporter Scatty Summers, along with his manager, Mr. Gene Sargent. Is there going to be a part in this comic where Jesse Custer punches Mr. Gene Sargent in the face? I don't think so. Okay. It seemed kind of like maybe they were building up in that direction. Sargent has here a very wordy defense for our face. Now, I know he ain't too easy on the eye. I know he may be lacking in social graces, and his knowledge of current fashion in Hollywood, California, is sorely lacking. But I do know he has sold over five million copies of his single in a mere ten days, and I know his many fans are eagerly awaiting his next one, which we are even now recording right here at Georgia Studios. So I would ask these ironic, postmodern, hip, Ladies and gentlemen of the Dreamcatcher Coalition, is this an artist you can afford to antagonize? Is this a face you can find it in your hearts to ignore? So, Sergeant's defense basically boils down to the offer was genuine, and also he sells a lot of records, guys. Undaunted, Scatty Summers asks Arseface about his rumored connection to one of the Spice Girls, to which he replies, Spice Girls? We find Star here struggling to free himself from the manacles of capitalism? No. <laughs> oh, I see. There's, like, literal manacles. These guys are living outside of the system, as a matter of fact, procuring their own food, in a matter of speaking. Their own their own sustenance. We're going to find out more about that in a minute. They're, um, they're definitely in control of the means of production here. I just want to point out, for the folks who are visually impaired by not reading the comic book, which is in front of us, that Star is in his tidy whities here on a bare mattress on this stone floor. Oh, yeah, we never mentioned that before, but he was in the last scene as well. Yeah. Maybe the reason that they can't read the comic book is because they had a little sip of the old Mountain Dew <laughs> before they listened to their podcast. A little sip of moonshine. The water of life. You are, of course, free to read the comic book along with us if you have it. Yeah. You're also free to drink along with us I... if you have no regard for your personal safety. <laughs> Except for those of you who are on the, on the morning commute. You may not read comic books. Yeah, you also probably shouldn't be drinking. <laughs> Shame on you. So as he's trying to free himself, he discovers under the mattress 
This is a magazine, Cheese Monthly, incorporating popular sodomite. And I don't know which is more ridiculous. The idea that a magazine about sodomy would be incorporated by an otherwise unrelated magazine, or the idea that somebody would be so particular about their specific sodomy magazine that they would then go on to start picking up Cheese Monthly. Well. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think the editorial staff has a good head on their shoulders, and they really, you know, they bring a viewpoint that I trust. <laughs> yeah, so we get a panel here of his facial expression. Distressed. <laughs> Might be one way to put it. Yeah, I think that's a solid analysis. So we now find Star's assistant, uh, well, right-hand woman is perhaps better. Fräulein Featherstone. Right, she is on the phone here talking to the U.S. president, reassuring him that the decision to launch the nuke can't be traced to him. The pilots are both dead. The ground crew who brought in the payload were ours. It's a stealth bomber. Its presence in the vicinity and the launch were undetectable. That's the whole damn point. But it seems the president has a strong desire to talk to Hairstar himself, and he can't do that because Hairstar is currently unavailable. Mr. President, why don't you just fuck off? And we see on her laptop screen here that she's working on a document entitled Messiah, Alternate Candidates. <laughs> There's obviously a lot of behind-the-scenes legwork that goes into the kinds of things the Grail does. She clearly believes John Pudding, the Reverend Jesse Custer, to be dead. Yeah, yeah, which, well, which we all believe at this point. Yeah, that's right. We don't know any different. And he was, of course, the Grail's candidate to be the messiah to lead the world out of the nuclear dark age they were planning to start. She picks up a photograph of Hair Star and with a tear running down her cheek says, Oh, Hair Star, where are you? Back in the silver mine, Carl explains bemusedly, Carl being one of the Chunt brothers. Right, Carl Chunt. Presumably. He... What? Carl Chunt, I presume. But I guess he could have married into the Chunt brothers, or <laughs> maybe he's a cousin. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. They didn't bother to give any other last names. He's got a saw hanging from his belt. That's a good point. Some foreshadowing there. Yeah. He is explaining that the magazine is not theirs. It belongs to the last person that they had here. Figured us for a passel of homosexual rapists, didn't you? Well, Cyrus over there, he couldn't sodomize a prairie dog if the critter stuck its ass in the air for him, uh-huh. So Star is relieved to learn that the magazine does not represent the brother's intentions for him. However, he is distressed to learn that there was a last feller who was here. Last feller to stay here, of course. You sure are a suspicious one, ain't you? Oh, all right, but Jesus Christ, my fucking leg. Wasn't there any other way? Afraid not, boy. We was hungry. Yeah, their hospitality has its limits. Yeah. And we get another panel of Harry Star's face. He's somewhat beyond crestfallen at this point. <laughs> he asks why they would eat his leg, and they go on to explain that chemicals and trash they put in the food nowadays only makes good sense eating nothing except you catch it yourself. Of course, living way out here in the damn desert, we don't get to visit no convenience store too often anyhow. Uh-huh. That was one mighty tasty leg you had on you, boy. Says, is that Ernie? Yeah. Sure was, by golly. Ought to last us. Oh, maybe till supper time tomorrow. Then we'll see. So now Ennis is simultaneously roasting rednecks and hippie food purists. Not to mention people who are automatically distrustful of rednecks. Yeah, that's right. He's roasting them, too. 
suspicious types. You, you know who else is doing some roasting? Who? John Brothers. Oh, yeah. I bet that wasn't varmint that they offered him before. I don't know. I mean, they probably catch varmint, too. Can't catch people all the time. They're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I guess you got a good point there. You know, we were having a discussion earlier, me and some friends of mine, about whether or not you could eat a skunk. Okay. My... You can eat a pufferfish. You can cut the poison out of a pufferfish. You can probably cut the stink out of a skunk. Well, that was sort of my opinion on it, was that the difficult part would be killing the skunk without getting sprayed. Right. Once you've done that, you know, you can clean it and dress it just like any other catch. It seems logical to conclude. Yeah. So that's what we thought, too. What do you mean, that's what you thought? I mean, me and the people I was having the conversation with. Oh, this wasn't, this plan wasn't tried. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was not attempted. When, when somebody says, it could go well, and you say, that's what we thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the last scene of the issue, we find Cassidy and Tulip in the motel room. Tulip is still in bed. I get the impression he's he's putting her to bed here. Either way, you've had far too much. You need your sleep, Tulip. But what? Your pills are there if you have trouble sleeping. I'll be right in the next room, okay? As he tries to leave, she catches hold of his arm and repeatedly says, Help me. Help me. Looking up at him blearily, close enough to kiss. What do you think she wants him to do? I'm not really sure. I mean... We certainly know what Cassidy thinks. Well, you can read it as her making a very a very basic pass at him. Maybe she wants to be turned into a vampire. Could be. I'm not sure what the virtue of that would be at this point. Right. Maybe she just wants him to suck her blood. You know, kill her. Put it right out of her misery. Yeah, I guess it could be. Anyway, it's ambiguous. But we learn what Cassidy thinks she's talking about as he... Walks out of the motel muttering, Jesus Christ, I'm only fucking human. Right, he's had something of a crush on Tulip for a while, and the intimacy of their of their troubled survival at this point yeah. is beginning to wear on him. This issue had no Jesse Custer in it. Oh, that's because he's dead, because he fell from a plane. Have we ever had an issue before with no Jesse Custer in it? I don't think so, except if you count the specials. Yeah, that was that was what I thought, too. I also just want to point out, Jesus Christ, I'm only fucking human, is a really great line for encapsulating the character of Cassidy. He is, of course, not human, but his failings are entirely human. He's a vampire. Yeah. He's also a bit of a jerk. Yeah. So, creature number 39, for all mankind. On the cover, we have the Chunt brothers looking down on the viewer, one of them with a fork in hand. Yeah. Cyrus looks different here to me. Is he without facial hair in the comic book itself? Yeah, I think he is. I think all of them are. Yeah, they've all got scraggly chin beards here, and none of them do in the comic book. Say what you want about them, but they, you know, they're diligent shavers. (laughs) Their problem is not being reluctant to get blades out, I think. (laughs) So we do not pick up where the last issue left off, but instead... The day after. Jesse, now minus one of his two eyeballs, is dragging himself through the desert. <laughs> one of his two eyeballs. <laughs> he felt the need to specify that he had lost one, yes, but that he had started with two. <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, it's important to know. 
Like, if he started with three, it would be an entirely different kind of comic book. Like if fucking, like if some kind of fucking Gran were to lose one eye. Is that, is that like a Star Wars alien? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. You know, a person from Malastair. That word doesn't sound like what I would think a person from Malastair would be. You would think some kind of Malastarian? Yeah, there you go. Well, that's a stereotype. Okay. My Well, my apologies. I regret the error. So yeah, he's staggering out of the desert. He's singing here the streets of Laredo. The song is about a young cowboy saying that he's shot and knows he's dying. So Jesse singing it kind of implies that he feels like hell. And he stumbles right past a sign that says, Blasting in progress, keep clear. Written in fairly sloppy handwriting. Yeah, but he does not notice the sign and it takes the blast to wake him up. Which sends him flying and lands him right on his back. Yeah, here he's standing up as the smoke clears, looking like he's coming out of Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> Wait, you made that comparison when the Saint of Killers was caught in a blast in the middle of the desert, too. Do you know a show that has spent more screen time on smoke clearing? Well, you've got me there. He stands up and he stares into the blast crater as this voice comes in. Jesus fucking Christ, man! Didn't you see the signs? Yeah, and he sees that what was blasted was an enormous pattern reading FUCK YOU in all capital letters across the desert floor. I think that was an interesting line that this new character just dropped because signs could be read in a couple of ways, including the literal sign that he walked past, some sort of prophecies, or the signs that Cassidy was making moves on Tulip, which Jesse failed to see. Ooh, clever, clever. Okay, now we cut to Cassidy, and he is sitting in the back of the pickup truck, drinking beer, thinking about Tulip's entreaties of help me. I don't know how much more of this I can take. We still don't know exactly what it is she's asking for. She also says, I need him. Yeah, there's just a montage of him taking care of Tulip repeatedly. As he thinks about this, all right for you, mate. All you had to do was die on her. Back in the silver mine, somebody pokes Hairstar in the head with a fork. The brothers laugh at him as he panics. You think old Ernie and me were going to eat you raw? Of course not. No, first we're going to poke a hole or two in that leg you still got there. Then we're going to fill it up with garlic, maybe a little rosemary. Then we're going to cut it off, you boy, uh-huh. That's just inconsiderate. You could at least start to prepare the leg after cutting. Carl is standing here with a book entitled Budget Gourmet 1001 Recipes. Seasoned with salt and pepper, set in the pan with a kind of red wine sauce I got about perfect. This is like the trolls in The Hobbit. They're really keen on the proper way to prepare the people they catch and eat. They're gourmets. Yeah, they, they have a passion for this. Star tries to tell them he's a very important man. Jesus Christ, I've got money. Take money for God's sake. You got it with you, boy? Well, no, obviously. Of course you haven't, or we'd have found it when we caught you. Everybody tries money, boy. Nobody ever has it. Well, shut up, Cyrus. Oh, man, he's got, like, a pan and a butcher's knife hanging from his belt. Yeah, yeah, seems like Star might have noticed that before. The clues are all too obvious when you know the resolution of the mystery. Anyway... Oh, boy. Ernie is suddenly distracted. Say... Anyone ever tell you your head looks like a great big picker? At this, Star despairingly rolls his eyes. So Jesse wakes up in this trailer, in the care of this 
kind of crazy guy with a blonde beard and an aviator's helmet. And this is worth noting that this is not back the scene we saw before, the day after. We're cutting to the present. Right. It is now a month later and Jesse has been in a coma for the entire time. He says, Suh, suh. And his caretaker eventually figures out what he wants, handing him a cigarette. Mm, you wouldn't have a little whiskey around here, would you? Not a good idea, man. Got you on antibiotics for that eye. Still, what the hell? What eye? Exactly, man. You lost one. Your left eye's gone. Don't know what happened, man. Found you about a month ago, wandering south after that goddamn fucking A-bomb went off. Been looking after you ever since. I've been sleeping a damn month? Recall falling out of the back of a goddamn airplane after that. Well, I wasn't really expecting there to be a after that. You sound like a man with an interesting story to tell, man. Jesse Custer. Johnny Lee Wombat. Back in the silver mine. Wub, says Cyrus, holding a pistol. Yeah, he's hanging out with Star and he just happens to have this gun in his hand. I guess so that he can be on guard duty. Really? I just assumed that he found one of Star's or the other Grail guy's guns and was playing with it. Either way, Star can't get the gun from him. He's too quick. But as Cyrus keeps saying, Wub, Star seems to realize what he's after. Yeah, it helps that he holds up a roll of toilet paper. Wub, Wub, Wipe! Jesus Christ, fuck off! Back in the desert with Johnny and Jesse. Wombat thinks that it's some kind of a miracle that Jesse's alive. Which is probably worth noting in a series in which God is a regular antagonist. Okay, you hear about these guys. Sometimes their parachute doesn't open and they fall in a fucking marshmallow factory or some bullshit like that. But really, you just don't do it. You ought to be a dead man, man. I know it. And I've been going over it in my head. But the damn thing just don't make sense. The engines are dead. Cast lets go. I fall. Something must have happened after that, but it's all black. In the meantime, there's something else that Jesse has been curious about. There's a giant sign in the desert that says, fuck you. Yeah. A recent addition to the desert landscape. Well, thereby hangs a tale, Wombat begins to tell. He remembers hearing on the radio at ten years old when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, and from that moment, he knew he wanted to be an astronaut. I guess I wanted to feel like God, he says. He managed to get into the Air Force as a clerk, but when he saw a really impressive application to be an astronaut, he just switched his name for that guy's. You thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> I think we've already made that Lonely Island reference. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> so Wombat was in. He was an astronaut for 24 whole hours before he got caught. You fucks, you can't do this to me. I want to fly the shuttle. He's not an old man at the time he says that. He hasn't really become Johnny Lee Wombat yet. <laughs> this is the beginning of Casino Royale. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he considers this a great injustice. See... He tricked his way in, but if they'd let him stay, they'd have seen that he had what no one else had. Something they wouldn't understand with their goddamn fucking muscles and good looks and big brains. I had grit, and I would have made it through that course on grit alone. And after ten years, ten goddamn fucking years of frustration and brooding, and alcoholism and impotence and a failed marriage, and sordid encounters with prostitutes, I finally knew how I could prove it to them. So, making use of sheer grit... He bought up a bunch of land and blasted a huge fuck you sign in the landscape so big that it can be seen from space. I spelt it out for him nice and clear, and I made sure they could see it on their goddamn fucking shuttle. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And I love Jesse's response to hearing this entire story, which is, 
Well, thanks for clearing that up. Okay, we're back in the silver mine with close-up on Star's face as he says, For what I am now forced to do, I will one day wreak vengeance upon God himself. Yeah, and so he wipes Cyrus's ass. Which Cyrus is very grateful for. And we've got four panels here of Star choking back vomit as he does, though. It seems like if he's got the toilet paper, he could just, you know, take care of it himself. I don't know, I guess he can't manage that. The whole plot kind of hinges on that incapacity. I suppose so. Pleasure doing business, Cyrus, Star says as he grabs the gun and shoots him in the back of the head. He then shoots through the chain of his manacle. Yeah, Carl and Ernie come in hearing the gunshot. Star kills Carl right away. Ah, you killed them both, damn you. But Ernie won't fucking die. Yeah, Ernie charges and Star has to shoot him over and over until he finally collapses right on top of Star. Ha! Shit. Back in the desert, Johnny Lee Wombat is explaining to Jessity Custer that seeing the fuck you sign he has blasted in the landscape fills him with an enormous sense of fulfillment. Having completed his revenge, he says he's no longer angry and bitter. No, I achieved something here, man. I did something positive. Jesse's a little skeptical, but Wombat goes on. You gotta remember, man, it doesn't matter who you are or how good you got things. Sooner or later, shit goes wrong for everybody. Sooner or later, there comes a time when all you want to do is shout fuck you to the world. It came for me, so it did, and now I feel just fine. But he goes on to ask Jesse, What is it makes you so certain that that time will never come for you? What is it you rely on always being there for you? You really want to know? Yeah. A girl. Yeah, he's got this great little hopeful smile as he knows that Tulip is alive and waiting for him somewhere. Man, that's rough. Yeah, especially given the scene that we cut to here. Yeah, so we have one panel of the pickup now sitting abandoned. The frame story is over. Tulip, says Cassidy. She's laying asleep in bed. She looks up to see him standing there at the foot of the bed. And cut to black. Man, fantastic dramatic timing on this issue. The one thing that Jesse relies on, and now we're not so sure he can rely on it. But... Whatever happens here, we know that Cassidy thought it out and he made a choice. He didn't just give in. Yeah, that's right. And this is a sort of crucial turn in the series. Or at least in the development of Cassidy. Yeah. That brings us to Preacher issue 40. One of the strangest issues in the history of the entire series. Now, there is a title for this issue, but we don't get it until the last page. So you will just have to live in suspense. We'll see what happens. On the cover, we have the Earth with Arseface's face superimposed on it. A giant drop of drool hanging out into space. We open on Arseface, sitting alone, looking morose. Somebody chimes in from off panel. Hey, Arseface! Bleh. He's looking drunk or maybe just depressed. The voice reminds him that he's a really big star. But he says he's the ugliest man in the world. The voice says he's not ugly. Well, okay, he is. But imagine a world where Arseface wasn't the ugliest man. Yeah, but... Ah, forget about it. Not can change the world. Oh, yeah? Huh? My fairy ass mother! Ass mother. <laughs> fairy ass mother. Okay. So, we now cut back to Jesse. He has apparently left Johnny Lee Wombat behind. He's acquired an eye patch, and he's not looking too bad. 
Yeah, so this is a kind of a variation. He's basically got himself a new costume. He's wearing the white jeans and a black t-shirt now. But he's no longer wearing the preacher's collar. And he's got longer hair and an eye patch. He's also got himself a thousand dollars and a dog. Or he's just acquiring the dog. It remains to be seen, I guess, whether as his recuperation continues, he will restore himself to full preacher costume or whether this is the all new, all different Jesse Custer. So he's filling a truck with gas when this friendly dog comes up. No name, no collar, but Jesse decides to use the thousand bucks to get both of them breakfast. He comes upon a guy in coveralls and no shirt wearing a trucker hat offering him a case of books he's selling used paperbacks 50 cents each or 10 bucks the case what you don't read you can shoot at done jesse says apparently buying the whole case there's stephen king and elmore leonard in there but there's also a book by Germaine greer yeah i guess once again we see that garth ennis has done his feminist reading and isn't above taking some pot shots Oh, you think the what you don't read you can shoot at was a pot shot at Jermaine Greer? Kind of aimed specifically at that book. That's what he's holding in the panel where the guy suggests it anyway. That your dog, mister? About to get himself in trouble. So the dog is yipping around the heels of a sheriff or sheriff's deputy in kind of a playful manner. And the sheriff hauls off and kicks him. What the hell you do that to that dog for? He your dog? No, but... Well, what the fuck business is it of yours then, asshole? There ain't no call for cruelty, is all I was gonna say. The dog didn't do nothing wrong. And there ain't no reason to call me an asshole, neither. Pointing to his badge. I got all the reason I need right here, boy. See, what this means is I can wring the mutt's neck and stamp your ass into the fucking blacktop, and there ain't shit you can do about it, you goddamn pissant trash. And it was such a beautiful day. <laughs> and then we just find a full-page panel of Jesse and the dog walking away from the police cruiser with the sheriff punched through the windshield. I guess you better be Skeeter. Did you get that? Oh, he, he buzzes around people like a Skeeter. Oh, oh I, can't, I see. Okay. On the next page, we see that Hair Star has fucks to give. There's a very distinctive sound effect here. Huh, 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 fuck! Star is making it over and over again as he hops across the desert on one leg. Do you think that's really faster than crawling? Ooh. More comfortable at any rate. <laughs> okay. To be clear, the fuck is every few steps he falls over and has to haul himself back up and start hopping again. Okay, that part's not comfortable. Now we get a page of our old pal Amy Grinderbinder. Yeah, she is delighted to get a call from Tulip. But she can immediately tell Tulip's not doing well. Honey, you don't sound too good. Where are you? Amy, can you come and get me? And then Cassidy hangs up the phone. Oh! Moral event horizon! That's where he's really crossed the line. Cassidy reminds her that they can't use the phone. Star could trace it. That's the excuse he's using at this point anyway. Where... Will you put your shades on? Sure. Yeah, he's got his shades off, which we almost never see, and Tulip can see his eyes, although we can't. Yeah, we don't actually see it here. Amy, in response to this disconcerting phone call, places a call to her friend Dana. Asking for a favor. Way to go, Amy. Person to call on in a clutch. Meanwhile, Arseface. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Arseface finds himself in a beautiful green field. This is the world he wanted, the fairy explains, and it's his to explore. He touches his face, surprised to find himself still ugly. But I'm still ugly. 
For asthma, I don't understand. Oh, you will, Arseface. You will. And as he walks on into this new world, we can see the mountains and the clouds and even the sun behind him are great big cartoon butts. <laughs> butts. Stop your grinning and drop your linen. Jesse says he's calling up Amy, who is apparently the person to call to find Tulip. She tells him that Tulip called and sounded terrible. Probably, he says, because she thinks he's dead. Now, Tulip didn't have time to say where she was in her brief conversation with Amy, but Amy called a friend in the Bureau. Are we assuming that's the FBI? Yeah. It's I guess it could be like the Bureau of Motor Vehicles or something. It's the only Bureau that exists. There's only one Bureau. You don't think that it was a person who lived in a cabinet? Get out. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to Vertigai, the show Eric does alone, because I'm not allowed anymore. <laughs> So Amy called her friend in the Bureau, and her friend in the Bureau traced the call to Southern Arizona. Phoenix, Jesse deduces, because they had great times when they were in Phoenix. I recently visited Phoenix. Have a good time? I did. You find Tulip O'Hare? I didn't. Uh, so 50-50. All I gotta do is check our favorite old places, and I'm sure to run across her sooner or later. Amy, honey, you just made my day. Yeah, but wait. Gotta go, girl. You take care now, you hear? Um... Yeah, he hangs up before Amy can tell him something else. Back in the motel room, Cassidy's saying they should be moving on. They can probably make it to L.A. in a few days. Up to you, anyway. Like I say, the world's our oyster now. Jerk! Oh, I hate him! <laughs> yeah, and Tulip is looking even more dejected than usual. Almost kind of like in a ashamed posture. Did he say anything? Did who say anything? I mean, before he fell. Cassidy reminds her they were going to try not to think about Jesse so much. I, I mean, wrote down here, you damn well know he did, Cassidy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it only makes you miserable now, doesn't it? She thinks it would help if she knew his last words. Cassidy says, no, love, he just fell. Okay, so Cassidy is treating Jesse's apparent death as his opportunity to travel the world with Tulip, forget Jesse and the journey that they were on. He's got the party that he wants now, on top of which he hasn't told her Jesse's last words, which were... In case you forgot. Tell her I love her! Mon will get a quick bite to eat, eh? And then sure, we'll head on to L.A. tonight. Now Jesse's driving to Phoenix, listening to the radio. He's glad to hear of Arseface's success, but Arseface has also been blamed for the suicide of a boy in Arkansas. The boy's father says he shot himself trying to emulate or look like his hero Arseface. Hey, fuck you, mister. Just because your kid was dumber and pig shit, that doesn't make it the boy's fault. Now, this is ironic, because Arseface's own father blamed his suicide attempt on trying to emulate Kurt Cobain. Media watchdog group Concern Overview immediately called for Arseface's single to be withdrawn from sale. Jesse goes into a rant about media watchdogs and political correctness. Yeah, we're a bunch of East Coast liberal assholes, and we are just so concerned. Except we ain't got the balls to take on any real problems, so we're gonna invent our own so we can feel like we're doing something. And then he continues to rant about body piercing for a while before pausing for a moment and concluding, I really gotta get laid. Yeah, there's a great, like, one-two punch here of, of his facial expression changing from, like, really super mad to, like, kind of mellow <laughs> as he realizes. <laughs> well, the reason he's such a grumpy Gus. Yeah, so he has a rant here about political correctness and then he realizes that he's being a whiny dick. Back in his fantasy, or whatever it is, Arseface, like Mike Hagger, hits the streets. Ooh. 
Yeah, and he finds that everyone in town looks just like him. Well, not really like him. They've got sort of idealized cartoon butts right. for faces, whereas he still has his scarred face. Right, his face is disfigured by a shotgun blast. There's sort of a a giant puckering toward his small mouth in the center of his face. He's, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound too judgmental when I say this, but he's remarkably ugly. They all just have cartoon butts for faces. Nonetheless, he seems to approve. As Nirvana! Well, he's a Nirvana fan. Yeah, I'm sure that was intentional. Meanwhile, Featherstone! Hair Star! It is you! She tackles him into a hug, which is awkward because he's standing on one leg. He's on an airfield, and apparently he called her, but she didn't believe it until she saw him. Featherstone, what are you doing? Well, uh, I'm just glad that you're safe, you know, so you can continue your work and bring about the world's salvation. After what I've been through, the only thing I feel like doing to the world is fucking it brutally up the arse. Took your sweet bloody time getting here, didn't you? Um, yes, but I had to fly to Vegas and then... So, what next? she asks. A hot bath, a weak sleep, a prosthetic limb, and Armageddon, in that order. Get on with it, Featherstone. Oh, Hairstar. It really is you. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a healthy relationship, but it is a relationship. In Phoenix, Jesse wanders the city looking for Tulip, telling Skeeter how excited he is to introduce him to good old Cass. Oh, this page is just such a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, it is. At the Big Country Grill, Jesse's walking up. He looks through the window, and he sees Cassidy and Tulip having dinner. God, you know something? Cassidy says. You are beautiful. Holy shit. What did I tell you? Jesse looks through the window, looks at Tulip, and is starstruck as usual. Come on, give us a kiss. Later. But Cassidy kisses her anyway. Jesse... Falls flat on his back in surprise. I'll be goddamned. Back in his whatever is going on here, Arseface greets a baby. Ah, what a killer baba. He loves you, Arseface. We all love you, Arseface. All of a sudden, Arseface is flying. There's a parade with all sorts of picket signs. He flies into the air and he finds his father standing on a cloud. Sheriff Eugene Root. He's here to tell Arseface how proud he is and how they're going to be a family again. Now, Root's face does not look like a... Well, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you're trying to say is that Root looks like he did the last time we saw him. Yes. <laughs> As Arseface flies into space, a voice asks, Do you understand now, Arseface? Yeah, I understand. Good night, Arseface. It's the entire Earth, and it's a giant cartoon butt. And there we get our title, Arse-Faced World. Okay, so what I have written here is, that was some self-indulgent bullshit. Yeah, it was a strange issue. The stuff with Hairstar and Tulip and Cassidy and the Reverend John Pudding was all pretty good. Yeah, there's some essential plot material going on here and some very important developments in terms of plot and character. And then there's Arseface's subplot, which I've mentioned before that I find Arseface to be something of an indulgence. Yeah, this whole plot is pretty silly and doesn't really move the story forward at all. Yeah, very cartoony, something of a distraction. 
But we do have essential development here in these three issues of the relationship between Cassidy, Tulip, and Jesse, which is never going to be the same. Yeah, that's definitely true. And in a very real way, it's not going to be the same because Cassidy doesn't want it to. Well, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, Jessidy, Jessidy, Jesse died, or so they thought, but he came back, you know? Yeah. And, and they could have had a glorious reunion, except for the fact that Cassidy chose to not convey Jesse's last words and to take advantage of the situation to be with Tulip in some you know, ridiculous mockery of a sense of the word. Yeah, yeah, except for the fact that Cassidy was living his dream in the absence of Jesse. It's fucking, it's just fucking rough to see the shit he gets up to when he's given the chance. And I actually forgot what order we found stuff out in. Okay. Because, you know, I thought that we found out what happened with him and Dee before this happened. But in a way, it's it's kind of even more devastating this way. There's another reveal coming up about D. Yes. Okay. A uh, very grim couple of issues, except for a couple of exceptions. And one is, of course, the ridiculousness with Arseface. And another is Johnny Lee Wombat. Yes, exactly. Well, and another another in the long series of affronts to Hairstar's dignity. <laughs> yeah, we get an affront to Hairstar's dignity, and then we get... At least Featherstone is happy to see him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're nobody till somebody loves you. Well, yeah, that's right. A star doesn't really care if anybody loves or needs him. He values himself by the power that he's managed to accrue. But Featherstone actually values the man. Right. And there is something kind of touching about the way that she misses him and their tearful reunion. Yeah. Yeah. In Jesse's conversation with Wombat, we call back to something that we kind of touched on in Jesse's interactions with the Saint of Killers during War in the Sun. That Jesse knows how the Saint was pushed to become what he did, and that he wonders if there's a possibility what it would take to push him that far. Yeah. And so the risk that is being called out here is when Jesse gets back and finds how... Cassidy and Tulip have fundamentally changed their relationship in his absence, we are encroaching on the loss of the thing that he relies upon most, on what could push him far enough that he could break. Right. Things are getting darker for Jesse Custer. And we have yet to see whether this pushes him to the breaking point and what happens when Jesse Custer is broken. But in our next Preacher episode, we follow another character pushed to the breaking point as we delve into Arseface's past in the story of you-know-who. The secret origin. But first, join us next week as Sandman asks, do you have anything with a happy ending? Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you do, you can reach us on Twitter, at Vertigize. You can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. We have an email address, which you can use to send listener questions or opinions on what you'd like to see on the show. That is Vertigize at gmail.com. Drop us a line. 
We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguise. If you get your podcast from the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or any other source that allows you to interact with that technology so as to leave a rating or review, we would certainly appreciate positive ones. Yep. Help spread the word about Vertiguise. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. As I walked out in the streets of Laredo As I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a young cowboy wrapped all in white linen Wrapped in white linen as cold as the clay I was just uh, down at the the Knights, the Knights Steakhouse. Oh, okay. And I had a, a king size, king sized old fashioned. Oh, okay. Made with Rebel Yell. I thought you were gonna say a king size steak, but then I was like, you really hate steak. So. No, it's not. It's not me. No, it was a big old old fashioned made with Rebel Yell. Mm-hmm. I was calling for more, more, more. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> am I right or am I I'm right? You know what's big old and old-fashioned? What's that? Your sense of humor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dad jokes on supply mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm.